This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Greetings and welcome to the latest episode of Footnotes. I'm your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, historian, author, and speaker. And y'all, we've got a special treat today. You are going to be informed. You are going to be enlightened. You are going to be challenged by my guest, Sam Heath. Welcome to Footnotes. Thanks, Jamar. Really excited to talk more. Hey, Sam, we are recently acquainted friends, I would Mm -hmm. say, Uh, haven't known each other for that long. But why don't you tell us um, how we found each other, and particularly through your work at Equal Justice USA? Sure. So the first time I think I came across you was through Color of Compromise. And and I don't know how it got to me, but the book got to me somehow. And I read it, and then I probably reread it, and then started just bringing it into spaces and did book groups with it at our church and became a friend who calls me a book pusher. And so I became a book pusher, (laughs) but for this specific one, and just had you in my mind and came under some of your teaching for a number of years. And then as I moved out of teaching, I taught high school history for 10 years. Yes. Into the ac- yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Former teachers, it, it stays with you. And then moved into the activism organizing world at EJUSA and thought about wanting to have an advisors group over my branch of that group, which is called the Evangelical Network. And he reached out to you just through your website and you you graciously responded. And I began what I think you called was a, a gracious persistence of, <laughs> I would love to talk to you more. I want to tell you about these things and ultimately would love for you to come be part of this group that helps inform what we do and shape what we do and bring it out into the world. And here we are about a year later. I am so glad that you did. I was saying before we press record that every time I talk to you, I learn something new. And so I am very thrilled for my listeners to get a chance to learn from you. First of all, let's start with your organization, Equal Justice USA. That's different from EJI, right? (laughs) It is. It's different. We're friends with them and really support their work, but it's different. And it makes sense that that we overlap and get mixed up. But we're both talking about equal justice, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so where, where is it based? So we're a national group of about 30 people and we're all remote. We have a mailing address in, in New York, but that's, that's really all it is. And so we've always been a remote group, even from when we began as a project of another organization back in 1990. And so we're a national group and we work to repeal the death penalty and we work to think about what does it look like to build a public safety ecosystem that doesn't rely on our modern reliance on police and prisons. So we talk about the difference of certain things about what does punishment mean? How is punishment not a definition of justice? How do we think about reform? How do we think about transformation? But we also talk about how do we think through the criminal legal system and what it does and how do we move towards something else? We talk about how can we be trauma-informed? How can those things be community-led and how can it be racial equity-centered? I love it. And we're going to get into all of that. I want to think about your sort of origin story, if you will. Uh, I'm really intrigued by this transition from high school history teacher to now working for a nonprofit that is focused on repealing the death penalty. How did that come about? Mm. So 
I taught history. It was for 10 years and, and loved it and, and thought of myself as a teacher, thought I would die at the chalkboard and still think of a part of this role as being an, an educator role and always loved that. Moved out of high school, immediately wanting to move into teaching and knew that that was the profession that I wanted to do. I love engaging information and people and, and taking that information and repackaging it to people. That is the, the thing that I think brings me some of the greatest delight. And that's what teaching is, right? Engaging students in relationship around some content. So I loved that. But the more that I did that, the more I taught, I taught US history and I taught European history. The more I taught the history of our country and what happened and read things like Color of Compromise, the more I started to see, my wife talks about that I had been bamboozled in the story Mm -hmm. that I had been told. And not only had I been bamboozled, now I was in a place to bring that story to others. And so the more I brought that story to my students and the more things that that brought up, it was exciting and it was also problematic in some of the reactions from students and parents and the school. And I started thinking, what would it look like to move into a more direct role with these things? A friend of mine had been in prison for 13 years and we'd been friends before, during and after that time. And he was my main on the ground view of what the criminal legal system really is and what it really does. And so when I thought about life beyond teaching, the first thing I thought about of moving down into is what would it look like to be in that criminal legal system world? And I came across Equal Justice USA and the specific role of managing their evangelical network and have been there about a year. I love how you're talking about the transformative power of history, that that, that as we study what actually happened in our nation, in our world, it shifts our perspective. Was there some historical event, era, individual that that really catalyzed you into into thinking about the criminal legal system or or even just justice in general? Yeah, I I think of a person and I think of just an idea. The the person who wrecked me and still does is James Baldwin. Mm. And specifically The Fire Next Time, if we're talking nonfiction, for his books and novels, if Beale Street could talk, but reading him and engaging him and seeing him and hearing him speak just resonated with me in this deep, deep way and still does. And every time I come under him, there is, as as you were saying before, I'm learning something and having things overturned. And he's someone I know I'll engage just for the rest, rest of my life. He, engaging him was a big crossroads. The idea though, that really arrested me and I think put me on a path towards a, a good felt obligation towards, I must respond to this, was there's a textbook called Race in America And a friend of mine wanted to do it in a book club. And there's a chapter there called The Invention of Race. Mm -hmm. And it talks in there about the idea of, you know, if you wanted to construct a situation to control and to grow and to do what happened with what happened with people from Africa and happened with global slavery, you would organize it not around money, not around ability, but you would organize it around something that someone couldn't change, like skin color. And once I started seeing that, the intentionality of the decision to create these ideas of races and categories based off of something that at least at that time, you couldn't really alter or change. That's when I started to see, I, I've seen this world in a wrong way. And, and then as I started seeing it differently, I felt, again, a good obligation of, I have to respond. Mm. And my first response was, I want to teach it in the classroom. And then I thought, I, I want to be a more direct part of what does it look like to change this? 
I'm still stuck on somebody wanting to do a book study on a textbook, but that's, that's it, okay. was, it was heavy. It was a group of white people and somebody picked it and it was, it really was a crossroads moment. My, my wife would still talk. She still today talks about, she said, I remember when you came into the kitchen, you talked about that part about how skin color was used as this piece to construct all of this and why skin color was such a strategic decision. I was like, yes, that was it. We, mm. it, it was the point of no return. That's really powerful uh, to, to understand the origins of racism as a means of control, economic, social, political, and what that does to you. Now, did you come from an evangelical background? And what did you learn about justice, uh, incarceration, any of those topics in terms of, um, you said you were bamboozled. So what was the, what was the trick? <laughs> yeah, I grew up in the South. So I was born and raised in North Carolina and grew up in the church, grew up in the SBC at a giant Southern Baptist megachurch for my first two decades. And, and I always credit it with, I learned who Jesus was and what the gospel is, and I learned the rhythms of the faith. But I also learned a lot of other things that came with being at a place like that within the South. Of I learned about sexism and about racism and about homophobia and how those things were a part of the pieces of that church and the culture, even if unstated, and didn't really know all of that. When I went to college, I started thinking about the implications of what it meant to be white, Southern, and male, and what that meant for me and what that what I brought with those things into other spaces. And that began a really, really prideful resistance mm. to, to all of those things. And then really after college, moving back to my hometown of Winston-Salem, became began this process of a lot of people being patient and, and rebuking and putting me in spaces to really consider what did those things mean? And if I knew what those things meant, what does love of neighbor look like in light of those things? I can't change those things about myself, but I can change how I bring those into spaces and how I live out of those things and those identities. And, and really the biggest thing was, for especially if we're talking about justices, is I learned about the criminal legal system and what people think justice is in this country, which I think most people think justice is synonymous with punishment. Mm -hmm. I started to see that I could put any of those identities at risk my identity as being white or male or any of those pieces or Southern. And yet that identity of who I was in Christ was constant. Mm. And that oh, all those other things I could put on an altar and offer those up and have people like James Baldwin press into those. And yet, and my first reaction, again, as Baldwin says in the fire next time, you talk about whiteness with white people, they'll respond in fear, anger, and guilt because you're talking about their identity. But if you have an identity that transcends or goes deeper than those things, that was huge. And so I had a community around me that gave me or reminded me of that identity of being a child of God. And so then I was able to put those other things at risk. And once I did that, again, it, it was it was all over. I, I'm, I'm an Enneagram one. So like if I believe this thing is right, I got to follow it all the way <laughs> to the end. And so then began this journey of reading people like James Baldwin and who just brought this perspective that then required a response from me. That's so good. And I want people to hear uh, what you mentioned earlier, this sort of patient persistence of people around you sort of just speaking the truth in love and saying, well, if this is true, then how must you then react and behave? But also digging in here, as we think about justice, there are a lot of different injustices you could have focused on and emphasized. 
Would you say that your emphasis with uh, the criminal legal system and, and Equal Justice USA was due um, to your friendship with this incarcerated person? It, it was two things at once. One, it was through my friend. Absolutely. The, he, he, it was, and as a human, right? I saw this as a, an issue that was really made up of people. Mm. And so when I saw it through his eyes and knew his story and his experience that I couldn't turn away from that. But then I also, for 10 years in my career, had thought about the bedrock of things to engage our country and help change the course on was education. You know, Mm -hmm. if we really engage, that's where we really went wrong. If we engage that, you know, that's the baseline. And then as I started more and more thinking about the criminal legal system and saw that as, wow, I think even under our education is this other thing that both shapes our country and shows our country for who we really are. And that it wasn't education, as important as that is, was and still is, but even under that was how do we think about punishment? Mm. How do we think people change? What role do we think control has? All of those questions. And underneath that, the place we see a baseline expression of them is the criminal legal system. And then education might be next and medicine and other places. But the criminal legal system was right there. And so I wanted to go more to that base of things. And a lot of it was because of my friend and seeing this is not an issue. This is not only a system. These are individuals that are there. Yeah. What do you think... In your view, uh, evangelicalism gets wrong or misconstrues about crime, punishment, restoration, those kinds of things. What What is evangelicalism, to use that broad term, teaching mm-hmm. about this stuff that maybe we need to interrogate? Mm. One, I think about within evangelicalism – you know, if we're reaching back to Divided by Faith, Emerson and Smith, and, and them talking about one of the, the toolboxes, of if we're looking at evangelicalism as an individualism or even a, a hyper-individualism, uh, then that relates to this. Crime is often looked at as something that only involves an individual. It's only something that, that somebody does to another person. Whereas throughout history, it's never really been looked at that way. And certainly not in the New Testament, the Mosaic Law, right? Mm-hmm. Harm and violence were always looked at as something communal. And if you think about church discipline and the way that it's talked about in the New Testament, right? There's harm against another person. Eventually, it is this communal thing. If there's resistance to engaging individuals, it is seen as affecting the community. So thinking about crime, one, as more than crime, right? There are a lot of things that aren't crimes that should be, and, and the reverse of that, true, of, of that is true too, right? If race is a social construct, so is crime. Now, it can be a helpful category to put things in boxes, but I talk much more rather than crime about violence and harm. Mm-hmm. And so if we think about violence and harm only on an institutional level, we're missing at least half the story. It's institutional as well, and it's systemic as well. And so to broaden that view of what harm looks like, once you see that, once you see that anybody who harms someone has been harmed themselves and that the system and the systemic piece is wrapped up in that, and then that system itself exacts harm, then it just compounds. And you can't only see that as an individual thing that only one person is accountable for. That is really helpful. And I always talk about the emphasis on individualism within evangelicalism, even in terms of just understanding what race and racism are. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we have this individualistic understanding without understanding the systemic and institutional manifestations, then we're really missing a big part of the story. Now, you're focusing in particular on repealing the death penalty. I think there would be a lot of um, 
Christians, a lot of U.S. residents in general who would say, you know, if the punishment fits the crime, then it's okay. Uh, if it's done and they're convicted, you know, uh, in a court of law, then it's a harsh thing. It's the final kind of punishment, but it it should exist. Um, why do you think the death penalty should be repealed? So one, we can think about who is it that actually receives the death penalty and, and, and what individuals and what cases get there. The number one predictor of who it is that receives the death penalty is the race of the victim. Mm. And so if that's the number one predictor, whether that be anything else, any other demographic or any other description, we see already that the system is, is broken. Even if someone holds a biblical category for the death penalty, the way that it's being applied isn't actually achieving what we want. Mm. We know that the death penalty is expensive, right? So it's not fiscally responsible. If we're talking about things like conservative values, each case is about $3 million. We know that the death penalty doesn't deter crime. It actually doesn't make us safer. We know that it actually perpetuates crime. And we know that it's often not something that murder victim family members want. They want something else other than that. They actually don't see that as justice. And as we started as an organization, especially listening to those voices, we realized this is not actually serving the needs of those individuals. So if we look at just some of the objective measures of what the death penalty is doing, it's not doing it. It's being applied in a racially discriminatory manner. It's too much. It's too often. And it's not working for what we want. But if we want it to just bring punishment, it absolutely achieves that. Mm -hmm. So why should we repeal the death penalty? For, for all those reasons I said before, it's not achieving those things we often want it to. It's not done well. It's not done consistently. It's not done cheaply. We've executed innocent people. 187 people have been exonerated since the death penalty came back in 1976. And those are just the ones that we know of. Mm. For all of those reasons, yeah, we, we, we should repeal it. But as Christians, we have an additional reason to really consider we know as Christians how God actually changes people. Mm. We also know that redemption is something that's always possible, that redemption is something that can always happen with someone. I think the death penalty is our culture's ultimate no to a belief that God can change people, both from a perspective of salvation and a perspective of just healing someone from trauma that they've endured or that they've inflicted on other people. So, But the death penalty really, if we get rid of those objective reasons, gets to do you want someone to be punished or not? And what is it that you want it to actually do? If we want the death penalty or our criminal legal system to punish, it absolutely does that. But if we want something else, some kind of healing, whether that be for the person who did the harm, the person who was harmed, or the surrounding community, the death penalty doesn't serve any of those individuals. And so if we want there to be a measure of moving on or healing or repair, we have to look at something else. And then lastly, and the biggest one, is Jesus. Mm. The fact that we have Jesus, this man, some, uh, someone last night I heard was, was quoting someone, I can't remember the scholar, but they talked about our convict Christ, mm. that we look at Jesus, someone who was arrested, someone who was put through a trial, someone who was executed by the state. We see Jesus himself enduring those things, coming back and tearing that curtain. We no longer have to punish other people. We can show the grace that Jesus showed to us. We can pursue the healing that Jesus offers to us in the salvific way. We can seek the welfare of the city now. Jesus changes all of this, our obligation within a society. I don't think that we need to punish in order to balance those scales of justice. I don't think it's punishment after Jesus that balances those scales of justice. I think it's some form of repair. Wow. 
very profound. But doesn't the Bible make provision for the death penalty? I mean, stoning and 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 all of these things. So is is you you mentioned Jesus, you mentioned the Bible. What would you say to someone who says, "Well, this is sanctioned in the Bible?" Right or eye for an eye. Yeah. might be the thing that comes to mind and definitely comes up a lot in conversation. If we think two things about eye for an eye, one is if we actually look back at when eye for an eye was given and talked about within the Mosaic law, Shane Claiborne says that eye for an eye was a limit, not a license for violence. There it is. And yeah. what he's getting at there is that eye for an eye actually was meant to hold back the violence that was already there. In Middle Eastern culture, if someone did something to you, then you were allowed to and expected to go and kill that person's whole family, destroy their home, salt the land for their crops. And, and you, you weren't meeting it with equal measure. Mm. And so what we see with eye for an eye was actually meant to be a, a, a maximum restraint of meeting something with something of equal measure. It wasn't required, but it was saying that that was a maximum. So that already was a gracious limitation that was there on violence. Mm. And then you fast forward to the New Testament when Jesus is asked about eye for an eye, he goes beyond that, Right. Jesus talks about what does it look like to turn the other cheek? What does it look like to pericaleo, walk alongside someone? What does it look like to engage healing with somebody? And so if we think about the Bible and the death penalty, it's sort of like something like divorce, right? It's something that is a provision that is often there, that's an allowance because we have this broken world. It is not something that is required. And after Jesus, I think that was really the game changer for it. When we have our God, man, savior executed by the state. And when we have in Romans 13, Paul talk about government and control and all of these things. And when he's talking about the use of the sword, he's not talking about explicitly capital punishment or the death penalty. He's talking about a measure of control, a measure of how is it that we live peacefully as a society. And there are ways to do that other than violence committed against somebody else. That's so helpful. One of the other helpful things that that you do is use these precise terms. And um, maybe people heard it, maybe people missed it, but I would love for you to unpack some of these things. So you've used the phrase uh, several times, criminal legal system. Uh, and maybe people are used to hearing criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Would you talk about that difference? Yeah, criminal justice system is is fine. None of these are like I'm going to judge someone if they if they use this term. But I I, I want to be precise with what I'm saying. I say criminal legal system most often because I, I hesitate to call it a justice system. I even have stopped saying that our criminal legal system is broken because I think that our criminal legal system is actually doing exactly what it was designed to do, which is to bring punishment towards specific individuals for the benefit of other groups of individuals. So I think our criminal legal system is working in the exact way that it was designed to. So I don't think that it's broken. I think that it's effective, but I think that's terrible. And so part of the criminal legal system language is this emphasis on if we're actually talking about what justice is, we're saying something completely different, something wholly other, and that justice is not punishment, which is how the criminal justice system defines it. We're talking about justice as something else, that it's safety, healing, and accountability. So it's, it's just a small difference to emphasize this current version of justice in the system actually is not there. Mm. This is uh, an allusion to a conversation I had on Pass the Mic with um one of the staffers at The Witness, Bria Perry. And we were talking about what does justice look like when 
harm and violence has has been done. So so in the case of let's say convicting the police officers who kill an unarmed black person, is that justice? Is that accountability? Is it something else? Um, how how do you sort of parse through that? It's so weighty. <laughs> Just yesterday we heard about an individual who had been convicted, my wife and I did. And she goes, oh, good. And I said, good? She goes, that's right. Wait, we don't believe in prisons and what they're doing. I'm like, right. And it's it's such a shift to be in this mindset and to see I can pursue something else other than our modern reliance on police and prisons to have healing. I can think of justice in some of these other ways, but it all goes down to how is it that people are thinking about punishment and what actually is justice? I said before the, the scales of justice. I mean, our current criminal legal system believes that when harm happens, the scales of justice are imbalanced. I believe that too, absolutely. But what I believe brings back that balance isn't conviction, isn't execution, isn't life without parole. Now, there may need to be a season, here, here's some more specific language, there may need to be a season of separation without harm mm. for an individual. Someone may need to be removed from a situation, a person, or from society. But the goal of that is ultimately to have that person reintegrated back into community. And we already believe this as Christians, right? If we did church discipline in the right way, that's exactly what it is right? We approach someone. If that's rebuffed, we approach with a group, we bring it before the church, and then that person is removed. Excommunication is never meant to be this permanent lasting punishment. It is meant to be this thing that is done for the safety of the community, because harm is always communal in its effect. And it is done with an invitation to return. It is done always with a handout of welcome, of return to this healing is offered to you. But if you can't pursue that in order to protect this community, we might need to remove someone for a season. But that removal itself isn't actually the punishment. That's what our criminal legal system does. It has imprisonment as the actual punishment, which by the way, you know this because you know your history, prisons themselves Mm. were a reform effort by Christians who were looking at the torture that was going on in the criminal legal system and said, hey, let's do something else. Let's put people within cages and separate them. Let's model it after a monastery. Let's even call it a penitentiary so that it is modeled after this idea of monastic penitence. Let's put them in cells and see if that changes them. 200 years later, we know more than that. We know that that absolutely doesn't work, yet we persist because it's Mm. easier. We persist because we need a capital O other. We need convicts, criminals, offenders, monsters, so we can separate ourselves from them. But you get in the room and in these situations with someone who's done the harm, been harmed, and someone trying to help them reconcile, those lines between victim and offender get really blurred. And that doesn't excuse what happened, but that gives this explanation so that we see, as I was saying before, that hurt people hurt people, but healed people heal people. Mm. First of all, this is one of the reasons why I had to talk to you on the mic is is how deeply you've thought about all of this. And I think especially my listeners and I appreciate how you're able to to look at it through a spiritual lens, a scriptural lens, um, a Jesus lens, if you will. So thank you for for all those connections you're making, I have so many more questions. One is, um, let me just say this. Let me just ask this to you. Aren't we being soft on mm. violent criminals who do real, real harm? Is Aren't there uh, 
reasons for these harsh kind of punishments? Uh, how can you extend grace to people um, or be talking about these alternative forms that seem so much more, some people would say, I'm just, you know what I'm doing. Uh, some people would say so much more pleasant and so accommodating to people who don't deserve it because of what they've done. How would you respond mm-hmm. to something like that? It, it depends on what is our goal. Again, is our goal just to control and just to punish or is our goal healing? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I said before, hurt people, hurt people and heal people, heal people. I'm quoting uh, Al Tariq Best, who's someone who does work up at a place called The Hub in Newark. And the idea of that is getting at, we all have trauma or most of us have trauma within our backgrounds. And yet we also, as we engage that, engage other people and can move towards healing. It doesn't disqualify us from that. And when we do that work of engaging that trauma, either ours or somebody else's, it's hard. It's actually being really tough on crime to force someone, or not force, but to bring someone into a situation where they are allowed to confront them. Mm. You talk with people who've done especially violent crime against individuals who are willing to go through like a restorative justice process and sit down with that person and talk, and they will say, it is the hardest thing that Mm. they have ever done. So if we actually want to call people who have done harm to others and to be tough on crime, it's having those individuals confront what they've done. It's having those individuals be held accountable. You talked about that word earlier, but accountability is a word that we often use as being synonymous with punishment. But when I say that, that's not what I mean. I think about, you have your own ARC, A-R-C acronym, but here's one for accountability. True accountability is acknowledgement, repair, and change. Mm. To really hold someone accountable for harm that they've done requires that person to acknowledge what they've done, to acknowledge the effect it had on someone, to do some physical act of repair, that's most often dictated by that person who did the harm. And then the change is something needs to change in that person's life or their surrounding institution or at the systemic level. So that thing can't happen again. That's true accountability. That's incredibly hard, but it's also incredibly gracious because not only are you bringing healing and hope to that person and to the person who did the harm, that affects the entire community. Ooh, ooh, that's a sermon right there. Tell us what the ARC stands for again. So acknowledgement, repair, and change. That's what real accountability is. That's beautiful. Let's talk again about some of these specific terms. You're using the the term repeal the death penalty when I think it's been um, perhaps more common to hear abolish the death penalty. Why that language uh, repeal versus abolish? Yeah. And again, it's fine to say abolish the death penalty, but I really emphasize repeal because repeal sounds less drastic than abolish. And what I'm talking about with repealing the death penalty, it's really a common sense solution. I don't need someone to think that the death penalty is biblically inadmissible to to talk about repeal, right? We should repeal based on all those other reasons. It doesn't work. It doesn't deter crime. It's done in a discriminatory manner. It's expensive. All of those are great reasons for repeal apart from whether someone thinks there's a biblical place for it or not. And so if we're talking about abolition, that's a big word and it means lots of things. For lots of people, it's a triggering word. It's a great word. And I'm not knocking the word at all, but what I'm talking about with the death penalty is a common sense response to something that doesn't work. 
And the word repeal names exactly what that is and is often a little more palatable to people as they think about what do we do with the death penalty? Do we abolish it? Well, we repeal it, but we're repealing it for the sake of building something else. And really, if we're talking about the abolition movement and that word, abolitionism is so much less about what you're tearing down and so much more about what you're building. Mm. But but getting someone to hear and see that often takes some, some time. It's difficult. But repeal, we can say, we need to end this thing. But I'm also way more interested in talking about what are we going to build? What does it look like for every community to be safe and healthy? And it also gets to the fact that the death penalty is established through laws and policies um, that can be changed. And Mm -hmm. uh, to your point, you you don't have to be sort of uh, theologically on board with the reasoning. You can just say, as a law, as a policy, this isn't working. Let's mm-hmm. repeal it. Let's replace it with let's replace it with something else. And that's what I want to talk about next is uh, the difference between punishment and repair or restoration. Uh, our system, you, you you said at the beginning, is doing precisely what it was set up to do, mm-hmm. which is to be punitive. What's the alternative? What is the vision that, that, that you want to replace that punishment, that punitive system with? Not simply the system, but sort of the concept. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So ultimately, we're talking about justice not being punishment, but justice being safety, healing, and accountability. Mm. And all of that is done in relationship. And all of that is done under this big umbrella of living restoratively, Right. If we look at what the gospel is, this act of restoration, right? We see Jesus come in and defeat Satan's sin and death and restore God's self, others, and world back together for wholeness. And so if we're talking, what does it look like for me to live restoratively in all of my spheres, not just with the criminal legal system, but in other places too? How can I live restoratively within the church? How can I live restoratively with parenting? That's often a place where I'll start is what does it look like to parent in a restorative way rather than a punitive way? way. And and for me, I believed in a restorative criminal legal system for years before I applied that thinking to parenting. And it wasn't really until COVID that I was confronted with the limitations of my control and punishment-based and punitive-based parenting that I realized I was really hypocritically talking about wanting something for those who were incarcerated and those who've been traumatized. And I was doing something else to my own kids. Mm. And so when we start talking about what is it that we're building at a big level, how can we live a life of restoration in all places? But if we're talking about our criminal legal system, what I want is when harm happens for someone's knee-jerk reaction not to be what was the crime and who should be punished, but who is harmed and who is it that needs healing? And who do I need to bring into my community to help that healing be pursued? If we did that and we pursued the answers to those questions, we would be building that system. What exactly is it going to look like? Nobody knows. And the most honest people in the movement will say, we're not fully sure because some of that depends on what does my community need? Mm. Oh, that is such a beautiful vision. And it's such a alternative to, to what we've been taught must be the case in terms of people who commit harm in some way. So I appreciate uh, the framework. I also appreciate the humility to say, you know what? It's iterative. We're going to figure this out as we go. But w- what we got to do is start by saying, this is not the only way. Not only mm-hmm. is it not the only way, it's not even a good, just, or humane way uh, of treating other people made in the image of God. So for 
listeners who may be new to this, who have heard you and are really, really intrigued, how can they begin to inform themselves about um, Equal Justice USA, criminal legal uh, transformation, all of those things? What are the next steps they should take? Mm-hmm. So you can always go to our website. And a lot of what I've said is, is housed there in a really deep way. Mm-hmm. So you go to ejusa.org and there's a page on there at the top called What is Justice? And when I read that page, that's what convinced me to come and work for EJUSA. Now, we're not a faith-based organization, but yet we reach out to faith groups. And I specifically and especially reach out to Christians and especially to evangelicals. But that What is Justice page, as I was going through that and reading a lot of the things I'm now saying, I realized my road to them was a theological one. And so if you also go to our branch of the page, evangelical.ejusa.org, you'll find on our resources a document there that's called a theology of our platform. And what we do is I go through there the five main things that we engage as an organization and think of them through a theological lens. Mm. So we talk about racial equity. We talk about the death penalty. We talk about healing justice, about trauma-informed systems, and about violence reduction. And how do we think of all five of those things through the lens of the Bible? How do we think about seeking the welfare of the city? How do we think about shalom? A lot of that theology is captured there. That is really, really helpful. This whole conversation, uh, I told folks at the beginning, I always learn something new, and I did again, and I hope they did too. Thank you so much, Sam, for um, not just coming on the show, but for your work, your vision, and uh, your your deep, deep empathy for other human beings. It's really an inspiration. We appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.